Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is a long-term client of mine, a great friend, Johan Taft. Johan is the founder of Magnify Your Greatness. He is a coach almost beyond compare. The results that he's been able to generate are breathtaking. We'll get a few stories from him about that. We're going to be looking today at blind spots that leaders and managers have. Now, the leader's not the most important person in the company, whatever you might think. You don't always have the answer. You're not the most qualified. Doing it yourself, probably a bad idea. You shouldn't be the VP of everything. And you're not really sure the impact that you're having on other people. Uh, you're probably stuck between your business and its growth. You know, one of the first lessons I learned when I got into business was that small businesses stay small because the owner keeps them that way. And they, you'll hear things like, I have no time. I've hired experienced people. Why should I train them? The real issue then becomes, you know, are you really hiring competent people or people who represent no threat? Are you taking sufficient care of yourself? All this kind of stuff. So today, we're really going to do a deep dive onto the psychology of being successful whilst also having balance. Johan, welcome. Thank you very much, Marcus. Great to see you again. And hello to you. So we can finish. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Uh, Johan, would you mind giving us about a minute to 90 seconds on your history? Because it's a fairly interesting one. All right. Well, some of you might detect an accent. Let me uh, demythize that right away. I'm Anglo-Swedish, raised in Belgium. So my first language is French. And uh, my first career was in the Navy. I was three years in the Navy and uh, in River Patrol and a lot of things there about leadership and management and how to stay out of trouble and how to keep off the wrong person's radar. After that, I went to the States and ended up kind of by accident, although I've been told many times, and I think I'm believing that now there are no accidents in life. But I ended up working in the fast food industry, which is I got where I got into management in a big way. At 19, I was one of the youngest restaurant managers in the food industry worldwide, I think, certainly in the States. And uh, I, uh, I applied a lot of the Navy discipline and some amazing training I received in that industry and went up the ranks and ended up running 26 of the busiest fast food restaurants um, here in the UK, in central London. Wow. And after that, I got headhunted into the video rental business dinosaur now i mean some people won't even know what that is uh, the shop that rented out video cassettes that we, we used to go spend money and rent a video for the evening and uh, I, I ran 150 of those it was a small company looking to uh, go pan-european and beyond perhaps and um, then of course the video industry came to a halt so uh, for the first time in my career since i was 16 i was unemployed and uh, at a crossroads i was either going to go back into corporate then I had a little idea of maybe setting up my own consultancy and being parachuted in. I quite like the diversity between going into different industries. And um, the very next day, an old friend of mine bumped into me and we had a long chat. He asked me what we were, what I was up to, told him about this crossroad. He ran a small firm manufacturing software games and invited me in right there and then to uh, help him with uh, sorting out his operations. So I got my first client within a day of thinking about perhaps setting up a business that was back in 1990-something, and I haven't looked back. And um, I moved away from dropping into organizations as a consultant looking at operations, and now I only work with leaders right at the top who essentially are looking to go from good to great. So that's what I did. Okay, excellent. So tell me this then. I'm really always really curious about the kind of blind spots that you see 
in leadership. And maybe if you can pepper it with a couple of the stories of where you learned it the hard way about the importance of spotting those blind spots. Well, I think one of the big blind spots is untrained leaders and unenlightened leaders, if you like, or leaders who are still on their way to becoming an enlightened leader. We'll talk more about that later on. Are, um, I think they're the most important person in the organization. And um, you know, when I, at 19, as I mentioned, when I became got promoted to restaurant manager, I thought I was the most important person in the restaurant. <laughs> and uh, all it took is for three staff members not to show up, and I realized I wasn't. Can <laughs> 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 pull drinks, make fries, and, and make sandwiches at the same time all in one go. So I needed other people, and that was a rude awakening. But leaders in organizations, and typically organizations I work with right now, quite a few of them are in the field of in, are experts in their field. So they're professionals who are experts in their field and set up a business of their own and, and have expanded. And um, because they're of their expert, their expertise kind of gets in the way of running the business because um, the person with the most expertise in the business is typically them, but they have expertise in their field. So things like architecture, surveyors, lawyers, people like that, accountants, highly trained individuals, four to eight years of university, um, probably cut their teeth in a big firm um, as, a, as an absolute specialist and then set up their own firm because they wanted some of the things that entrepreneurs want, freedom of time, freedom of thought, freedom of all these different things, which incidentally many find that they, they, they never get. Uh, <laughs> that's, the big, that's the big formula is how do you actually get it um, because that was their dream usually. And for leaving the big corporate. And they, with as a result of that expertise, they become the top person in the company. And um, they have failed, and no real failing of their own. I think it's a failing of the education system overall to learn what it takes to run a business. And um, they, they should see it as their own failing. They should own that and fix it. But uh, you know, I'm not blaming them because it's, it's very typical. And then now, before you know it, they've got 20 or 30 people working for them or more and they haven't learned the expertise in getting the best out of 20 or 30 people. So they end up working too much in the business, not enough on the business, and they become bottlenecks. Right. So you're seeing these symptoms. You're seeing that you don't have time. A lot of stuff is being delegated up to you, or you're rescuing and maybe even micromanaging or interfering. You're run ragged. Yeah. When you see these clues, what, how do you stop yourself from the, I mean, because for many people, it seems to be an addiction. Uh, but what's the starting point to be able to actually claw some of your life back and uh, create a business that works for you instead of you working for it? I, I think the starting point for most human beings is extreme dissatisfaction. And, and fortunately, I mean, we're wired, we're wired in two ways. If we want to make change, we're wired. We're wired. We, we initiate change either because we have a, a, an aspiration to do things better or to grow, or we have a deep dissatisfaction. And I think most people, um, it's the latter that that drives them to actually get into action to change. So the first thing I would say is, do you have a deep enough dissatisfaction that the discomfort of change is less than the discomfort of keeping things as they are right now? I think that's the key. That's the awakening for most people. And when I get called in, most of the people who call me in have had that awakening or are in the middle of that awakening. Okay, so once you've had that awakening, what do you do then? Then you've got to be able to elevate yourself from your current situation. So, you know, Einstein, he said, I'm kind of paraphrasing what he said, but pretty much he said, you can't fix a problem from the same level of 
thinking or the same level of consciousness that created it. So you've got to be able to elevate yourself from that. And it's difficult to do it alone. That's why it's useful to bring in a third party who has the experience and has that elevated. The mind works best when it's open. Right. It's a bit like a parachute. Now, a parachute to be open is elevation. Without the elevation, it can't open. So we need to elevate our mind, elevate our thinking. So borrowing someone else's mind who's already elevated can help us. So it's a bit like you're an eagle with a broken wing. You need another eagle who's, who flies it. I don't know how high does a flight, an eagle fly, 5,000 meters or something, consistently to help you get back up to those levels of thinking because then you can have the overall view of what's going on and um, you know, and and no longer just be stuck in the woods. That's the first. That's the first step. Okay. Awareness. So w- once you've realised and your awareness level has reached the point where you realise that you may be the issue, and you've recognised that uh, help from a third party is wise. What what's the uh, the next step in terms of uh, understanding you know the moving parts because when you're running a business, there are so many things going on and you have your life and your family and your spiritual life and your security and all those other things going on. Plus, you're operating in a very volatile, confusing, complex and ambiguous world. That's a scary place for most people. Yeah, well, there's two phases. Uh, number one is getting absolute clarity. So that elevated, it's getting absolute clarity on everything, a new clarity, and especially clarity on purpose and role. So what is my purpose and what is my role? Where are we going? I'm amazed by how many companies don't really have a clear plan on where they're going. They say they do. I mean, there's something written down, but it really isn't embedded in people's minds. And what people are really looking to do is just get through the week. That's the reality of it. And a lot of leaders I work with, if I can only just get through the week, I'll be happy. And you'll end up only ever just getting through the week if that's where your mind is at. So through the elevation, you've got to start looking at beyond the week. And you know, I had this uh, conversation with, a new client I'm working with in Australia. And uh, we looked at, we asked the question, you know, as, as the business owner, he's paid typically, I don't know, 15 to 20 times more than his average employee in the organization. And we asked, well, what are you, what are you paid for if you're paid 15 to 20 times more? And an industry could be hundreds of times more, by the way. Um, and in a small business like that, 15 to 20 times, what are you paid to do? And we went through the exercise and about 17 minutes later, came up with the answer. The right, the right answer that I was looking for here was I'm paid to think. Now it took him 17, he had to get past all the things that he thinks he's paid to do and that he typically does do to actually get to I'm paid to think. Everyone else is paid to execute their expertise, but he is paid to think. And that was a revelation for him. So how much of his time was he actually spending in thinking time? Less than two minutes a day, he told me. now if he's listening to this hopefully he'll have a chuckle as well but it's typical we're so we're so stuck and we're caught in the doing we're we're sucked into the business and the thing is that addiction you talked about it's very very difficult to get out of it I mean another client of mine here in London we were we fully redefined his business what it was where he wanted to go because you know just getting past the week isn't really where he wanted to go ultimately and that's not why he set up his business so we reconnected with his initial dream and then we put all his experience and everything he knew between the day he invented his purpose his dream if you like and set up his own business we added all those years for more than 20 years and we upgraded it and updated it and created a new one then we looked at well how could he 
best serve that. And so we decided he had more than just one hat. He was no longer the chief specialist. He was the chief specialist, but in, with a role of inspiring and passing on his specialization to other people who would then take it to the next level. So he's like the, the curator of the specialization rather than the, the master doer. And then the other hat was he's the master leader. He's there to cause the business vision to manifest. And the third one was, because he's a small business, his third hat is the master business generator. And of course, and then so in those three roles, in those three hats he has, the idea would be to build teams under him with people who would then manage that for him. So he's got three hats now rather than one hat. And interestingly, although it sounded to him initially like, well, oh, that's a lot more to take on. Actually, the exercise was to take off and to hand the stuff to other people. So by the end of it, it took four months, right? But by the end of it, he took everything off that shouldn't have been on his desk and suddenly it's freed up 15 hours a week. Suddenly the stress levels dropped and he had clarity of purpose. And so now he's at the helm of the ship rather than in the engine room and the ship has now got a proper chart and a proper destination. So, so a very, very useful tool for people out there. Just take a piece of paper, divide it into quadrants, and uh, in the top left-hand quadrant, write the word do. Top right, decide. Bottom right, delegate. Bottom left, design. Absolutely. And track where you spend your time. I would put money on it. You spend most of your time either doing or deciding and next to nothing in delegating and design. Another very useful model is one where you look at the other functions of management and look at doing, supervising, designing, leading, and coaching. Now, what's really interesting is the percentage of time that people actually spend in coaching, leading, and design, recruitment, building the team, all that kind of stuff is typically in single figures or low double figures as a percentage. Yeah. Now, uh, the CBI re uh, released a report in 2020 that said that 30% of interactions in the workplace are good and around 10% are bad. But the bad experiences are five times more profound and impactful than the positive one. So I'm really curious to understand when leaders and managers, founders, owners change their thinking, how does that balance shift from the bad to the positive experiences? Well, that's a very good question. And the thing is, what I found is there's a cold turkey, if you like, period, where they're getting off this addiction and they'll be confused. They need a lot of support then. And that's where, that's where they get their money's worth from me, is that support between, because it's a little bit like they've got an old railroad that they've built and is fully operational, I mean, operational, we could question that, but it's a, it's a broken system, but it functions. It's a broken system that is fun. That it, but absolutely. And what we're doing here is we're building a new railroad with a new destination. But the thing is, they can't just drop the old railroad because the business would they'd be out of business, it'd crash. So they've got to keep that one going. At the same time, design and build the new one. When the new one is has got sufficient momentum, then we end up just abandoning the old one. There's that period of the unfamiliarity unfam of something new and the addiction to be stuck on this rail track. And so they needed a lot of support there, a lot of nurturing, a lot of support, and a lot of um, motivation. But the point is, and so that cold turkey experience could drag them straight back into the old. 
And that's the difficult point. And being addicted to, to working, workaholism is huge. It's a massive problem in the world. And, um, you know, I, I work with a lot of North American clients, for instance, and they hardly take any vacation at all. I mean, one firm I'm working with right now, no one has had a proper vacation in three years. Wow. Uh, three years. Then I tell them that I take three months vacation every year at least. But they were in disbelief. They think, how could your business be successful? I know they were thinking that in the back of my mind. I could, I could hear it practically. How could your business be successful if you take three months off? But to me, the sign of a, of a successful business, I could take six months off and I come back and there's more money in my bank account than when I left and people are happier. Self-directed, self-motivated teams. So it is very difficult. And the other thing that I, I do with clients right away is get them to reinvest in their own being. And that's where, the, like your graph, you talk about the doing, but the first exercise I give clients to do, and it's part of their homework before they even come onto the program and sets them up for, for session one, is I ask them to write on a, on a sheet of paper, an A4 sheet of paper, why what they were looking to get out of the program with me. Typically, programs go on for a little while. So, and they'd write all this stuff, and then we'd read it together. And most of it is all about doing more, doing different, and having more and having different. And there's some complaint in there about how they're doing and all the pains of how they're doing currently doesn't work, all that. So I read it, and I tell them, well, basically what you're telling me here is you're a, you're a human doing, having. And they go, what? And that's the first pattern of the class. Yeah. You're a human doing, having. And they say, oh, I don't understand. I said, I, I, I precisely. And so, I mean, I asked them this in, the English, people in the English-speaking world, they, they actually don't give me the answer right away, but any foreigners do. I asked them, what was Shakespeare's most famous quote? And so the English, people from the English-speaking world give not 15 or 20, yeah? But yeah, exactly, to be or not to be. Um, you know, when I was in, in high school in, in Belgium, French-speaking Belgium, that um, in, in the French-speaking education system, France is the center of the world, and all the French authors and, and playwrights, they're, they're the best and they're the only ones in the world. Yeah. But actually, we did talk about English ones. And for four minutes, we spoke about English literature. And basically, it was to be or not to be, that is the question. <laughs> <laughs> but he said to be, not to do or not to have. Right. So that's the starting point. So we get people thinking about being and they don't. Many people, some people get it, not don't get it because it's something we're never taught to focus on. Your being has to be, has to be full powered up in great in great shape how can you show up to work and hope to inspire people with no flame with no spark we've got to look after ourselves so your average executive or average leader is burnt out stressed out tired exhausted probably got a, quite some illnesses going on yeah doesn't sleep well at night pains and aches yeah memory is starting to decline ability to to creatively think there's just so many, so much stuff. I've still got that. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully you've diminished it sufficiently where you can actually raise your head above the parapet of all of that, and, and which I know you have because I know you well and you, I know you have. But the point is there's just so much clutter. And so the nervous system and the brain, are, so we need to recharge that. So fundamental, I mean, the one thing all leaders should be protecting their business against is... Yeah. It's really interesting because I, I saw a post today that really sparked my imagination. Um, and uh, there was uh, saying that we should stop calling it burnout. We should call, call it what it really is, which is exploitation. And it, it's really interesting because when you start to reframe things, then you look at it through fresh pair of eyes. 
sometimes a cold, hard slap around the head of honesty is very healthy. What if the way we work isn't the best way? What if we're trying to, you know, we're, we're trying to serve shareholder value, but everything that we do runs counter to that? Because one of the themes that I'm seeing more and more, um, there is a pushback against the rapacious culture of success that's been dominant for the last couple hundred years, but particularly the last 40, 50 years since you know, the commerce has exploded. The Industrial Revolution was big, uh, but when you consider that now there are more people alive on the planet than have ever been alive on the planet throughout our entire history. The, the pace of innovation, the pace of change, the volume of consumption, it's just never been you know, seen before. So all of us are operating in a world that's really very unknown. We're seeing this pushback of the next wave of leaders and founders who are saying, yeah, we want to be successful, but you don't have to be an arsehole about it. You don't have to be exploitative. You, you can actually have a purpose. And I'm really curious to see whether or not you're starting to see that within the corporates that you're working with. I'm seeing it you know, coming through from the innovation base. Absolutely. I mean, there's an overwhelm. Without doubt, there's an overwhelm. I mean, an overwhelm of information, an overwhelm of change, as you said, an overwhelm of pace. People can't get up, uh, keep up with it. The one thing, I mean, not everyone's receptive to, to it, but I, I, I put it to my, my clients. The one thing they should do immediately is disconnect from what my granddad used to call the tell lie vision. You know, because people wake up in the morning, they didn't have a good night's sleep already. You know, they wake up at 4 a.m. with all the worries about business, etc. Then they probably fall asleep a little bit for another 45, 50 minutes. Then they get up again. Their heart is pounding, right? Then what they do is they go and get a stiff, a stiff coffee. They knock, knock that down. Now the heart is, is, is accelerated another 20%. Then they turn on the TV at 70 decibels or whatever. But the point is, even though they didn't get a good night's sleep, the mind is still in that sleep mode. It's theta delta brain waves, And so they're receptive to getting all this stuff, all these suggestions are coming into their mind, all the chaos and confusion and violence and craziness that they're getting from TV news mainly. I mean, the news in the morning is full on. All that's coming into their head, and that's what they're starting their day with. Then they have a half a breakfast if they do at all, right? Now, I'm not the greatest promoter breakfasts, but they'll eat some junk food, so now the sugars, they'll eat some sugary stuff or whatever. Now the sugars are contributing to all that stuff going on, and they're starting their day off, if you were to analyze them, their nervous system and their brain function and their body, they're starting off like a ship that's been beaten by some by, by some storm before it's even left harbor. Yeah. But it's absolutely crazy. But the thing is people aren't aware. And when I open them to that awareness, they realize how crazy that is. And they start making little changes and cutting things out, you know, cutting negative people out, cutting negative influences out, and start to repopulate the brain with goodness. And so then their self-concept, their self-belief starts to get a positive impact. The doubt starts to drop a little bit. The fear drops a little bit, and it's bit by bit. But you top that up every day. It's a little bit like a bank account. A good, not the bank accounts nowadays, but back in the days when you'd have 15%. <laughs> yeah, you, get, you get the knock on interest every day of 15% on 15% on the 15% increase, your compound interest. If you do the right habits that support the physiological aspects of our body and our brain, you'll get the rewards and then you start getting the edge because it's a little bit like a butcher, right? I mean, there are no butcher shops anymore, but you and I were old enough when we grew up. <laughs> Certainly in my village, there were butcher shops. You go there. Now, what's the first thing that the butcher does every day before he opens the doors? Puts his 
meat out, I guess. Yeah, up. he puts his meat out, and before actually bringing in, opening the doors for the customers, he sharpens his knives. All right, okay. Yeah, a sharp knife, one little, yeah. If the knife isn't sharpened by the edge, he has to start hacking the meat. Yeah. Yeah, now, that's very obvious. I remember going to the bush. I used to love watching them sharpen. They do it throughout the day. They pull out the leather thing, and then you see and They're them. always sharpening it. They're always sharpening it. So that's the, the butcher's tool. Now, as a CEO or a leader of an organization, we said it earlier on, what are we paid to do? We're paid to think. What's the tool for thinking? Brain. How often are we sharpening it throughout the day? We're not. We're dulling it. Years and years of hacking away. Initially, it was sharp. We were young. We were enthusiastic. We came out of college. We had all these ideas. We had all the energy of youth. Yeah, and We were cutting things nicely, not with the, the wisdom, but certainly with the sharpness. Right. What's happened as we go along, hopefully we've acquired some wisdom or at least experience, but we've lost the sharpness. So now our minds are dull and we're, we're working hard. We're trying hard. Trying hard is, is like a fly trying to get out the window by flying harder into the window. All they had to do was change direction and go out the open window. So okay. we, we've got to sharpen, sharpen the sword, I call it. I mean, uh, Stephen Covey in that timeless book, The Seven Habits, he talks, talks about sharpening the sword. God, that's the first thing people should do every day. Right. Okay. So in terms of sharpening the saw, then there's diet, there's sleep, there's hydration, feeding your mind with good material, meditation. What else? Well, the five principles, and if you look at the five physical principles, you've said them right away. I mean, you go by the, the most urgent and, and important, three minutes without breath, you're dead. Now, look at breathing, for instance. I mean, and again, people say, yeah, and you teach this stuff to business people, they don't pay you to learn this stuff. I said, they didn't invite me in to learn this stuff, but they realize when they do learn it, they show up more powerful. Their day is easier. Yeah. yeah? And so you could do a simple exercise. Most people shallow breathe. In other words, now babies don't. You've got kids, I've got the kids. You see them when they're babies, how do they breathe? You see them lying there and their belly is going up and down. In other words, they're using their full lung capacity and they're fully oxygenated. Then they get into bad habits and that slows down a bit. And eventually they breathe in the, the upper chest. Eventually they're just breathing into this little upper part here. And then so you can tell people who do that, their shoulders are all tight. There's all this pain. Yeah, they're very stiff. And, you know, if you asked me earlier on how I cut my teeth, half of it was in all those business things I mentioned. But the other half, was my passion for martial arts since I was a kid. And then uh, my introduction to the whole world of Zen meditation, everything through the Eastern Masters. And that's where I've, so I, I kind of marry both these things. And you can do a simple little exercise, do it with one of your kids or whatever, or maybe not your wife, bad idea, but a friend. First of all, you, you ask them to time, to take a timer and do like half a minute, how many times they breathe. So a breath could be in and out, or you could just count in as one, out as two. And you'll see that, and I do this with every single client. You see that the average breathing rate is between 18 to 25 or 30 breaths per minute. Now, someone who's breathing like that, you know they're only using their upper capacity mm-hmm. because it's... <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Someone who's breathing using their full capacity, and that's all the way down to the lower ribs, and actually there's a diaphragm there that actually expands even lower. And the Japanese, they call that the hara, the center of man. And if you look at all those Japanese martial arts or, or in the whole Orient, for that matter, their arts, the chefs, their everything is all comes from the, that center. They call it the center of man. And if you could operate from there, from your center, 
um, you will be 10 times more stable physically, emotionally, and mentally. And uh, you can do this because where the, where the body goes, the mind goes, or where the mind goes, the body goes too, for most people. So if you see, you do, do a test with someone, you measure it first, 18 to 20, right? And then you have them just stand there in front of you, and then you just shove them like this, just push them, and you'll see they'll topple. Right? The instability, because all the weight is at the top of the tree. <laughs> yeah. And that. So we want it at the center of the tree, where the roots are. So the human being's roots are in his, in his belly, like two fingers below the uh, navel, in the middle between the spine and the navel. That's the center. The hara, or the Chinese call it the dantian. When Abysman starts operating from there, his mind then follows, because where the breath goes, the, mind, the, the breathing calms everything down, and the mind will then change its chemistry and more importantly, it's frequency. And if they learn to do that sufficiently, then they can then easily get into meditation, which will help it even more so. But what we're looking to create is a mind of what I call dynamic tranquility. That means we're calm, but we're fully switched on. Follow me? Now, uh, you might... Relaxed like alertness. Yeah, absolutely. We don't want people to slow down. We don't want businesses, businessmen to slow down. They've got, a, you know, they've got a big pace to keep up. We want them doing the right things but we want them to calm down because when they calm down, the mind, the brain works a lot better calm because when it's, right. when it's under pressure, you use that reptile brain. Go on. This then speaks to another very common issue, which I see all the time, which is calming the need to calm the inner voice because frequently what I see is people's inner voice is cruel, it's judgmental, it's prejudicial, it's hostile. Now, I always had learned that those inner voices, those unconscious behaviors were the brain's way of attempting rather clumsily to protect us. But when, you know, I, I'm talking to a, a family friend who's suffering from depression at the moment, and she won't speak to anyone. She's isolated herself and she was ashamed of it. And I said to her, that, you know, there's no reason for you to be ashamed. You're ill. And uh, at the moment, the challenge that you have is that because of that inner voice giving you so much grief and diminishing you, it's not giving you any breathing space. There, there is no respite. And what was really interesting was as, as soon as I said that, for the first time in a year, she's actually volunteered to meet somebody. So she's invited me out to lunch. Yeah, I'm never, never one to turn that down over in Chinatown, as you well know. Uh -huh. um, what, what's really interesting is uh, unless you can see that blind spot, because ultimately, I'm, I'm not qualified to help. I know that. So, you know, the idea is that you'll be open to uh, getting help from somewhere else. But uh, unless, some, unless someone helps you to open up that moment of awareness and acceptance, it's very, very difficult to break free of that inner voice and the, the prison that that creates. So, again, what can people do to start to become aware of that catastrophizing, that damaging, that disempowering inner voice? And how can you change your response to it so that now you have start clawing back a little bit more ownership and agency? So the first thing is, again, it's awareness. It's having a better understanding. And unfortunately, a typical education system has taught us to be very good at doing specialized things, but hasn't taught us much about ourselves. And so that story you've just shared with me, I've, in these last two years, I've had many such stories. I met so many people who have this terribly negative self-chatter going on. Now, 
the golden question there is because you said you used we had uh, what, how, what did you say you said what we say to ourselves uh, or use how we see ourselves right or that voice of ours who is it that I'm referring to when I say I or mine or me or Johan who is that right and that's I think where the fundamental misunderstanding is so there's two things that need to happen number one is realign with who we really are get an understanding of when I say I or me or mine, who do I really mean? I'll come to that in a moment. And secondly, is get over the embarrassment of being a human being. It's a messy thing being a human being. I mean, we do crazy shit. And when you consider how amazing our brain is and the capacity, look at what we've created. I mean, we've created great things, but can look around. The amount of misery, the amount of poverty, the destruction, and that all is in people's own minds. The misery in their own mind, the self-destruction, the self-sabotage, the dissatisfaction, the lack of love, the torn relationships, the addictions that can go on and on and on. It's a very sad picture. And this all stems from trying to protect something that isn't real and fighting for that. So what I invite listeners to do is to consider this. Consider that your brain is the most incredible supercomputer ever invented. And uh, for those people who know about computers, and for that matter, smartphones, they have three things. They need three things. First of all, a hard drive. And with hard drives, we all know we need to, from time to time, clear the space, free up gigabytes for it to function properly. Then we have the software. And the software cannot operate without an operating system. So the operating system needs to be current, and the software needs to be compatible, free of all the junk. And this is basically all about clear thinking, superior thinking. And thirdly, for those two things to operate, we need power. We need charged up batteries. No power. No computer. Okay, but busy founders, leaders, entrepreneurs are going to push back and say, well, I, I can have time to sleep and relax when I'm dead. There's work to be done. What would you say to them? Well, I mean, I get it. I used to be that way too. Here's the thing though, right? Consider you're in a partnership with somebody. They didn't look after their health. 52 years old, they have a stroke. It's over. Guess who you're working with now? Their spouse. <laughs> You might not like it. You might like it. You might not like it. You might not be trained. I mean, look around. How many people in this last year, how many messages have I had in this last year through LinkedIn and others of messages saying we are very uh, saddened to report the loss of our dear business friends, da, da, da. They're young. They're dropping like flies. Lots of them. Very sad. Depressingly sobering. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't, I mean, for all sorts of reasons. But the one thing, I mean, let's face it, no health, no life. And we take it for granted when we're young. And my God, did I take it for granted. But then we get to a certain age, mid-30s, early 40s, and some ailments start to slow us down. Now athletes will know about this. Health is everything. But business people too. And, um, and hair sprouts from unlikely places. Indeed it does. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the thing I'm really ruining. Apart from everything hurts, it's all the hair that should be in the... It has left my head and migrated to my ears and nostrils. Exactly, exactly. Hair migrated to different places. So all, all these things we become more and more conscious of. And then, then the absenteeism, we can't show up anymore. Right? Then what was it all for at the end of the day? You know, so we, we must start putting the horse before the cart, put our life force, value our life force more than anything else. And from that, people who value their life force and cultivate their life force I mean, of course, we don't have a crystal ball, but all things being equal, um, we'll have the power to drive happy, successful, joyful, 
lives and prosperous businesses. Because without saying, really, don't you think, Marcus? That is an ideal. But again, you'll get a lot of pushback from people saying, well, you can't have it all. And my question back to them is, well, why not? Absolutely right. It's exactly the same question that I put back to them too. Why not? And again, it comes down to habit and to awareness. So the moment people's awareness is awakened a little bit and they realize the impact of the things they're just doing without thinking, start switching those into superior habits and see the output. I see it on the micro level, of course, on the micro level and macro level, but a macro level is a, is a accumulation of micro things. All the little things we do every day are either moving us towards an optimum goal, and I say goal because we really should have health goals um, if we want to thrive in our activities, or it's moving us away from those goals. And in the same way, all the little behaviors we put into our business are moving us towards the health of our business or the decline of our business. So um, we are the center point, and our people are the center point of our business until we're all replaced by robots. But until then, you want people showing up for work. Now, if the leader isn't taking care of his or her health, how can we expect our people to take care of their health? And there are organizations, and I came across a very interesting organization in Vietnam, an architectural organization. And they, the firm is by far, I think, the leading architecture firm in Vietnam, not just for huge, big national projects like bridges and, and, and skyscrapers and things like this, but also for beautiful residential. And they're pushing the, uh, the envelope with renewable resources, et cetera, and bamboo and things like this. And the founder needs his people to be the cutting edge of their thinking power. He basically enforces two hours of meditation for each employee in their business every day. So when they come to work, part of their working day is two hours of meditation. And I asked him why. I mean, that's extraordinary. And that's kind of forcing people to do something they might not want to do. He says, I don't force them. They have the choice. If they don't want to do it, they don't work here. I said, why? what's the purpose of two hours of meditation every day? He said, well, twofold. Two things we get from that. Number one, they drop their addictions, whatever those addictions might be. With two hours of meditation every day, they'll rapidly drop all those addictions. And uh, secondly, they have access to their super creativity a lot faster. So we get designs out three times faster because people can act to access the greatest thinking in their brain. Because all that clutter we were talking about earlier on with the, uh, the blocked up hard drive and the cluttered software or the out-of-date software is preventing people from giving their best thought to their work the best thinking power to their work. Okay, but all of this sounds like a shitload of work. And uh, I'm really curious to find out how often people are really committed to this transformation. Because in the end, it means that they will end up doing significantly less. But just the pushback, I imagine, is immense. And then the excuses come thick and fast. So how do you help them get ahead of themselves so that they don't end up self-sabotaging and falling off the rails? That is, the, again, that is the difficult part. And the, the help is situational. Different people are going to need different things. I mean, one man's medicine is another man's poison. However, there are some uh, universal principles that apply for everyone. So I only work with people who want it more than I do right now. That means that that line, that voice, the line is, is on the floor or the the pilot is on the floor gag, but he desperately wants to get back in the pilot seat. So there's there's already that will. It's there or it's 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 igniting to want to do it. You you know you can take a horse to the water, but you can't force it to drink. So I don't work with anyone who fundamentally doesn't doesn't want it. 
Now, you can, you can put salt in the oats and make them thirsty. Yeah, you, you can, but, you know, but you've got to keep putting salt in the oats. Yeah, and how much salt have you got? So, so, so how do you make sure that they want to drink? Well, again, it's a dissatisfaction, all right? The pe- listen, people come to me. Oh, not only me, forget about me. Common sense, I, I, I once saw this, this little quote, common sense is what humans resort to when, when everything else has failed. Typically, right, the dissatisfaction has to be pretty good to work with someone like me. Big, not good. Yes. The dissatisfaction had to be big because why would they come to me? First of all, they wouldn't know and use the same. Right? They've come to me usually because they're referred and they might have had a conversation with a friend, a business friend, and they start to complain about how terrible their week was and how their people aren't producing and how the market is tough and how the coronavirus crisis took 10% off their bottom line and this or, or more, et cetera, et cetera, all these complaints. Then their friend says, sounds like you need some help. Help, I know I can do it by myself. Well, yeah, that worked. That's working. Probably not. And so, well, do you really do you really want to change this? Says, well, I, I don't know. It's, I'm at this stage of the game, I'm a bit old. Bit, do I want? And so, well, you seem to be happy with how things are. Oh, no, I'm not happy. They've got to get to that point where the dissatisfaction of keeping things the way they are is bigger. Then they'll have a desire right now. Your question is, how do you keep them in the game? Yeah. Yeah? So they'll jump in, but how do you keep them going? That's where they need the support. And that's where they, I allow people to make mistakes. I'll protect them against the huge costly ones. We'll put them out of business, because if it puts them out of business, it puts me out of business. <laughs> but I'll let them make mistakes, but then learn from the lessons. And one thing business owners are poor at doing is learning from their business mistakes. They, they take it the wrong way. And I'd say the first if you want a quick tool, there's no quick fix for this stuff. Yeah. I mean, 30 years of doing things the wrong way, it's not a quick fix. You've got to work at it. And you've got to be as, as, as passionate and working on the improvement of yourself and your business as the running of yourself and your business. But the one thing that people, I think, can take away from today, if they wish, is reframing. Start and you use the word yourself while you're on, reframing. That's one skill I teach people very early on. You start to reframe how things are. And, um, you know, sometimes I work with athletes and I worked many years ago. And, you know, this story, I've shared it with you. But I, I worked with this gymnast and uh, he was six-time national champion of gymnastics in his country and was looking to go for the seventh time, which would put him in the Guinness Book of Records. And I didn't know him very well uh, when I met him, when I first met him, but um, when he shared this with me, uh, but he was, he was a broken man because his international competition was a couple of weeks away and he'd lost all his confidence and all his faith in being able to, to win this. But the desire to win it was still huge. So he was massively conflicted, couldn't sleep at night. Um, his stomach was eating him up from the inside, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, we ended up working together. I only had a few days because I was due to go on a business trip to the States for quite a while and his meeting was um, before I came back. So we had a couple of days. And in a couple of days, the one thing I thought I could do is if I can help him reframe this whole experience and look at it differently, then he actually has the smarts and the discipline, because I think it's very disciplined, and the desire to do the rest. So uh, we spent time looking at what the root of the problem was. And the root of the problem was, because I asked him so many questions, we discovered that the root of the problem was is that he was comparing himself to the new younger guys. Now, this guy was in his mid-20s. They're all in their mid-teens um, who his competitors were and realized that 
he got the realization that he was he was looking at he was looking in the wrong direction. So rather than comparing himself to them, he started comparing himself to the capacity that was in him above the invisible ceiling that he'd created. I asked him, do you think there's an invisible ceiling? In other words... And he started comparing himself with himself the day before. Yeah. He started to compare himself with his capacity, himself. I asked, do you have any capacity left? Could you be better than you've actually been? He said, yes. I said, on the scale of 1 to 100, he said, I'm probably 85, there's still 15%. He said, to what percent would you need to get to to beat all these other kids? He said, well, 85 is already very, very good. If I get to 90, it's, it's okay, let's just look at reclaiming that 5% then. But he dropped from 85 to 40 or something. Mm-hmm. But now the realization that the reframing itself got him back to the 85, and now we worked on the five. And I came back from the States many weeks later and he'd won, won the deal. It's fantastic. This again is really interesting because I think people tend to look for the magic dust, they're looking for the big fix. But if you can find the point of leverage where you can apply a light amount of force to get a lot of talk or a lot of leverage, then those solutions tend to be incredibly powerful. But more often than not, what I see is people looking for symptoms to cure. And the net result of that, obviously, is that the the cause is not addressed, so it keeps coming back. So again, how, how can you prevent those false starts when you are trying to go through this kind of transformational change? and not fall foul of you know, the common uh, pitfalls. The key there is clarity on your vision. Once you've created a new vision, you now become the servant of that vision. Everyone in your organization is a servant of that vision. So you're no longer the most important person in the business. Your whole team is the most important person in the business as a team. You're all there to serve the vision and you all have different functions and you get absolutely clear on what your function is as the leader. It's a very clear function. Go onto Google and put what other functions of a leader, they're there. It's not, it's not rocket science. They're there. But how many people embody them? That's a difficult part. So you're going to have to tear yourself apart. And that's where it takes time. But sometimes it can be in a day and then rebuild yourself. And now you're serving the vision through being that role. And you've got to drop the other stuff. Now, you might not be able to drop it overnight because you still got to do it. So there's that, the two railroads we were talking about. So the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Now, what is the main thing? If the main thing is just getting through the week, you'll just operate at a person who's get through the week, which is basically reactionary in survival mode. If the main thing now becomes the fulfillment of this magic, this wonderful vision, which that is the magic, if you like, it's not a magic pill, it's a magical vision that inspires people or inspires them enough at least to get out of their comfort zone. As Tony Robbins says, transformation begins at the end of the comfort zone. Yeah, You've got to get out of your comfort zone. And a comfort zone, getting out of the comfort zone really is just about expanding what is comfortable. It's not getting out of something. It's just expanding what is comfortable through learning and through building your capacity, if you like. So one man's war is another man's walk in the park because he's built his capacity to deal with war through training, etc. So you've got to practice. You know, when a coach or a trainer or mentor teaches you stuff, don't wait till the day you need to use it to practice. You need to practice this stuff everywhere. And and the... the- You've touched on a couple of points that I want to unpack. The, the oh. first thing is that you, if you learn something, you have to practice it or it will be lost and forgotten. And you can't master it just by doing it once. You need to do it repetitively. You know, it's Bruce Lee's old, you know, famous quote, I'm not afraid of a man who knows 10,000 kicks. I'm afraid of the one who's practiced one kick 10,000 times. Exactly. Um, 
And the, the challenge here is people do not set aside enough time for learning and growth and development, but they don't set time aside for practice and rehearsal. That is critical. As a leader, you need to rehearse important conversations that you're going to have. You need to plan. You need to strategize. And if you're running from meeting to meeting and producing report after report, you never get any of that stuff done. So, look, we've we've come to the top of the hour, and this has been fascinating. I'm curious, as you look back um, over your career, and maybe you go back to when you'd, uh, you had four years in management, so 23, and you go back to whisper in the ear of the idiot Johan at that age, what one piece of advice would you give him that would have stood him in good stead throughout his career? Get more interested in other people faster. Uh-huh. Get interested in how people think, how people operate, how, how the brain works. Get interested in, in the whole DNA of people, their emotions, their thought processes, understand that because then I could have, now this is not going to sound very good, but I could have leveraged other people sooner. In other words, let people bring to the table their best sooner because I know I've kept people down to keep me up. That's the first thing to conquer. And the second thing is I've kept people down because I didn't think they had it in them. But actually, I was very surprised and I'll give you a great, very great example. I'm working with a firm right now in the States and I was brought in to help them exit and help the, the, the senior partner exit. And you know, initially they had it in mind maybe four or five years, but tidy up the business and, and then help him create his, his next thing. What we found, and he had not taken care of his health and he got very ill. And what we found is that um, through uh, going in and having that elevated perspective and looking at everything from a fresh perspective, we realized that actually his leadership style, as enthusiastic and proud, if you like, that he was, wasn't best, the best leadership style for the future of the business. And so rather than retiring him in four to six years, he retired in six months. Now, we obviously needed a leader to step into the space. His wife, who was a junior person in the business, she'd rather work in her husband's business than elsewhere, reporting to a boss who actually, frankly, was definitely in the wrong place. And he was an autocratic, toxic boss. She was actually thinking of quitting the business. I interviewed her and saw some genius in this woman. And uh, I saw a lot of potential. But we're now 11 months in, she's now the CEO of the business. Doing great, absolutely great. The toxic partner who I mentioned, who was her boss, left because, you know, when the lion takes over the jungle, the monkeys don't want to be there anymore. They go looking for other jungles to disrupt. And this is the really important thing because what I tend to see happen is organizations tend to go one way or the other. And I've just started getting into um, an area of psychology or um, social understanding called spiral dynamics. And it's a really fascinating um, leap beyond Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And what the basic premise in it is that you need people of all these different varieties who see the world through a different type of lens. But what you need to do is create the conditions where their best characteristics can flourish and you don't give oxygen to the worst characteristics. But you need all of them to make a, a healthy organization flourish. And the problem typically is that one tends to dominate and they then uh, get go into excess and that then creates the seeds for their own overthrow and downfall for the next, the next iteration. 
But what we're seeing at the moment with Ukraine is a, a, actually a clash of belief systems and value systems that has been brewing. And you know, the, the problem is that what we're not looking for is what we have in common. And I, I see that as being a major hurdle. So one final question then, in terms of what you would recommend people read so that they do become more holocratic, if you like, so that you know, they include everybody, what, what sort of stuff would you recommend people consume content-wise? I mean, there's so much out there. I would say, this is a bit of an unorthodox answer, but I would say go to a physical bookshop. <laughs> go to any department in that bookshop that attracts you. Right, because, listen, some of the greatest lessons I've learned did not come through self-improvement books or leadership books. Absolutely. They came through reading wonderful stories. Right? For instance, Paolo Coelho. Read any of Paolo Coelho's stuff. I mean, the alchemist looking for the treasure went across the world, found out that it was actually buried underneath his, uh, the floorboards in his own house. I mean, what an incredible story. But all the, the micro lessons you'll learn by reading a story so rich. Um, some of the classics the Greek myths and things like this. I mean, phenomenal. So go into the shop and just but go in there in a relaxed, joyful mode, mood and, and, and just wander around and, and, and see what books are talking to you. It could be a gardening book. It could be a, a book of a music book. It could, be, it could be a leadership book. I mean, I get often asked, especially by my class, yeah, and when are you going to write your book? I say, well, why should I write a book? Well, all the great things you've got to say. The bookshops are full of them already. Right. I want you to practice stuff. You know, an ounce of practice is worth, worth a ton of knowledge. But books have their place, and they help us open up and get that awareness to then want to take new different action. So, and that could be any book. Great. So I, I actually, because my background in the military, like reading military books, and um, this is going to be another one, a very unorthodox one, but a very great book about a leader in action. Of course, it's on the wrong side of the, uh, of the war, is the the memoirs of a guy called Hans von Luck. And he was... Brilliant book. Hans, Hans von Luck. You heard of him? He was a panzer commander yeah. um, um, under Rommel. And he, he fought all the campaigns in the Second World War, an extraordinary committed human being, a great leader of men. And he was as comfortable in the boardroom, if you like, with all the senior commanders where there was an etiquette and uh, all the politics, and as comfortable four hours later in a tank in some boiler suit with his yeah. people... Um, but uh, a great story, very well told. And I listened to it on Audible, where it, it, there was a guy with a kind of accent. It, it was great. It was a great. It was, no, it was a fantastic story. book. And that is really good advice because one of the critical characteristics of the uh, the most successful people that I know is they have range, which means that they have breadth of experience as well as depth. And you get that through reading and through consuming content. So get out there, learn. So, yeah, switch on all your intelligences. Yeah, we've got all these different intelligences and just don't go down a specialization and let all the other intelligences, all the other topics, like my, my little three-year-old boy, he loves to sing, he loves to dance, he loves to play with the Mikano, he loves to read books, he loves all these, he loves to cook, he loves to go out and play in, in nature, he loves to do all these different things, cut things with scissors, he loves to learn to write. He's got all these intelligences, and the thing is, they all feed off each other. It's like a team. Together, everything achieves more, rather than just isolate oneself in one particular field that we think is our favorite one or we're best at. It's limiting. Excellent. Johan, thank you so much. How can people get a hold of you? They can call me. Well, actually, the best is actually reach me through my website, 
www.magnifyyourgreatness, all in one word. Search me online. There aren't that many Johan Tafts in the world. They'll, they'll redirect. Go onto my LinkedIn, search for Johan Taft, or uh, contact you if they can't find all that, and I know you know how to get a hold of me. Yeah. Excellent. Johan Taft, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this insightful, then please do like, comment, share, tag somebody, subscribe, and get in touch with Johan. He's a fabulous coach, and the results he generates are extraordinary. They're incomparable to um, you know, anyone else that I've ever come across. So in the meantime, if you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. And if you're really interested in what I'm up to nowadays, I'm focused on building ecosystems. So finding people who genuinely want to collaborate and create a better way to work. So get in touch. Stay safe. Happy selling. Bye-bye.